Let's be seated. Will you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 32? And you'll need a Bible to follow along. So these brothers have some. They're going to make their way toward the back as they do if you need a Bible. Don't be shy about getting their attention and letting them hand you one of those and keep it. Bring it back each week. Uh, That's our gift to you, and we want everybody to own a copy of God's Word and be able to follow along each week as we look at Scripture together. Some of you, like me, are old enough to remember a seven-year span from 79 to 86 when a man named Barry Bremen was famous or infamous, depending on your point of view. Bremen is the West Bloomfield native who, during those years, sneaked his way into venues from the NBA All-Star Game to the Emmy Awards. Now, when I say he sneaked his way in, I don't mean simply into the room or the arena, but on the court, on the field, on the stage. In February of 79, he put on a Kansas City Kings uniform. That's now the Sacramento Kings in the NBA. And he got onto the floor doing pregame warm-ups for the NBA All-Star Game at the Pontiac Silverdome. That was hosting the game that year, and where some of you will remember, the Pistons used to play their games before the Palace was built. Now the Palace has been demolished in its Little Caesars. So here he is on the floor warming up, and Otis Birdsong, who was a real NBA player for the Kings, looks at him and says, you and I are on the same team, and I don't even know who you are. (laughs) Shortly thereafter, he was escorted from the court and the building. Now in today's heightened security environment, nobody could pull off what this guy did. He got into warm-ups for the NBA All-Star Game two years later in Cleveland, this time with a Houston Rockets uniform. He crashed baseball, football, golf, even cheerleading events. At the 79 Major League Baseball All-Star Game in Seattle, he shagged fly balls in the outfield for half an hour and nobody noticed. He then attempted to pose for a group picture with several Hall Hall of Famers. He was finally spotted and ushered off the field. He dressed as an umpire at the 1980 World Series game. He walked out to the plate with actual umpires before he was discovered. He posed as a referee in the 1980 Super Bowl in New Orleans. He golfed practice rounds with PGA players at the U.S. Open two years in a row and a third time in 85 when it was played in Bloomfield Hills at the Oakland Hills Country Club. He actually posed as a Dallas Cheerboys cheerleader, Dallas Cowboys cheerleader. He made it onto the field, he got out one cheer, go Dallas, before he was hogtied and handcuffed and taken into custody. And it wasn't just sports. In 85, he crashed the Emmy Awards, went on stage to accept the Emmy for the Best Supporting Actress. He was handed the trophy by actor Peter Graves and actually began a speech on behalf of the actress who was making her way up to accept. So an average guy in the All-Star game a man dressed as a Cowboys cheerleader, a, a male accepting the actress, the award for Best Actress, none of, it, none of it fits. There's a real disconnect between the appearance and the reality in all of this. And in sports and entertainment contexts, it's, it's humorous. But you see, in the Christian life, the appearance and the reality are supposed to be consistent. So here's a a disconnect that's not funny at all. A Christian who does not have 
the joy of the Lord. A Christian who is chronically miserable. You see, those are supposed to be oxymorons. A miserable Christian, a joyless Christian. After all, one of the fruits of the Spirit is in fact joy. But the fact is, they're all too pervasive in the church at large, including, if we're honest, for some of us. Year after year, you've professed to be a Christian, and another has gone by in which the joy of the Lord has eluded you. And so I ask, aren't you sick and tired of your misery? Aren't you tired of wallowing in self-pity and anger and bitterness? Do you long for the time when the reality and the appearance are, in fact, the same? When what we profess and what we possess have integrity, they are, they are one, they're complete, they're whole. Perhaps you can't recall a reason to be joyful, to be extraordinarily happy. Well, let me help with that. Let's look at verse 1 of Psalm number 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. It's a state of being that the Bible calls blessed, an overwhelming joy, an overwhelming gladness is available for everyone who has a relationship with Jesus Christ. So let's pray now and ask the Lord to help us to see that as we look at his word together. Father, thank you that we're here by your permission, by your appointment. We thank you for creating in us a desire to be here. I thank you for these friends and brothers and sisters who have arranged their schedules in order to now sit in your presence with your people, with your word open before us. And so, Lord, now we ask you in these sacred moments to instruct us. May we indeed be receptive and may we leave this place better equipped, having understood you better, understood ourselves better, to then serve you as you desire and deserve. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You should have received an outline when you came in as each week. And I say, first of all, that the blessed person is one who has a personal relationship with God. Psalm 32 is a psalm of instruction as indicated by the Hebrew word maskil in the superscription. Just before verse 1, you see that there. It's a psalm of David, a maskil. That's a word that means the giving of instruction. It's the first of 12 psalms with that title. And in this one, the instruction is about our relationship with God, how it started and how it progresses. In particular, this psalm instructs on how the blessing that comes from knowing our sin has been dealt with so we no longer hide it, but bring it into the open with God. David, who wrote this psalm, knew what it was like to try to hide his own sin because he had, in fact, done so, having sinned grievously by committing adultery and then covering it up by arranging to have the husband of his mistress killed. He was confronted about it, and God used that confrontation to convict David, who then responded, as believers ultimately do, by confessing his sin and restoring the intimacy of their relationship. Not restoring the relationship itself, which if we belong to the Lord, we already have, but the closeness of that relationship, which unconfessed sin hinders. 
Psalm 51 tells us about David's confession, and this psalm tells us about the result of that confession. In Psalm 51, David said, by way of a vow, I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. So I, David, have gone through this. I am now in Psalm 51 confessing, and I want to be used to teach others. Turn back like David himself did. And this Psalm 32 appears to be David's fulfilling of that vow to instruct others to do likewise. And it starts with remembering the personal relationship that we have with God to begin with. Now I say that because verses 1 and 2 use terms that point back to when we first came to the Lord. Verses 1 and and 2 use three different terms, three different Hebrew words. Most of you know your first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, including the book of Psalms, was written in Hebrew. And verses 1 and 2 use three different Hebrew terms for sin. And then they also describe three things that God does in response to each for his people. The first term for sin is in verse 1. It says transgression. And it means a rebellion against God's authority. You see, friends, every time we sin, it involves at least two persons. It involves us and it involves God. Even if our sin adversely affected others and we need to confess to them and seek their forgiveness, the most important offense is always against God. That's why when David sinned against the woman Bathsheba, with whom he committed adultery, and then sinned against her husband Uriah, who he arranged to have killed, and as king he also sinned against the nation, even with all of those others affected by his sin, notice who is most important as he confesses the sin in Psalm 51. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So transgression is rebellion against God. All sin involves that. And then the second term used for sin is a different Hebrew word from the one that's translated transgression. It's just translated sin in the New International Version that most of you have in front of you. But this Hebrew word means to fall short. And it was a a term used in archery to describe an archer using a bow, bow and arrow, but the arrow falls short of the target. Sin is failing to live up to. Sin is falling short of the character of God. And that's why in your New Testament, Romans chapter 3 says, all have sinned and fall short of the character, the the glory of God. And verse 2 uses yet a third Hebrew word. It's again translated in English as sin, at least in the NIV, but it's different from the other two terms in verse 1. Some English translations make that difference clear by translating it iniquity in verse 2 rather than sin. It's a term that means crooked, twisted, corrupt. One preacher has summarized the significance of all three, saying the first term, transgression, describes sin in view of our relationship to God. It pictures us as being in rebellion against Him. The second word describes sin in relation to God's character, as described in the divine law. We fall short of it and are condemned by it. 
The third word in verse 2 describes sin in relation to ourselves. It's a corruption or a, a twisting of right standards as well, of our, as well as of our own being. To the, degree, to the degree that we indulge in sin, we become both twisted and twisting creatures. Psalm 32 was Augustine's favorite psalm. He had it inscribed on the wall next to his bed before he died in order to meditate on it better. He liked it because, as he said, the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. He's absolutely correct. Now, many of you say, wait a minute, doesn't the Bible say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge? But knowing yourself to be a sinner can only happen as it is in relation to God who is the standard. And so Augustine is absolutely correct. The humility that's willing to see ourselves as we are is the most important requirement for making spiritual changes in our lives. If we are not willing to see ourselves as we are and what our problems are, look fully in the mirror, spiritually speaking, then we cannot and will not move forward for we won't acknowledge the changes that need to be made as James chapter 1 tells us. With each of these words for sin, there are actions that God takes in response. For the first, our rebellion is, we're told in verse 1, forgiven, which means to be lifted off, to have a burden removed from our shoulders. When we confess our sin, God removes it. Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And the Lord says, through the prophet Isaiah, I am he who blots out your transgressions and remembers your sins no more. And the second thing that God does with our sin, our falling short, is to again in verse 1, it says he covers it. It's a word that's taken from imag the imagery of the day of atonement in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament. And some of you may recall from reading your Bible that on the Day of Atonement, the high priest entered the most holy place of the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was. And so you have the temple, and God had given the dimensions of the temple and the compartments of the temple, and in the midst of the temple was this room, the most holy place. And in the most holy place was this box, we see, Ark of the Covenant. And God had said exactly what was supposed to go on it and what was supposed to go in it. And on it was this, was this lid. There were two angels, cherubim, signifying the, the presence of God there. And there was this lid uh, over it on which the priest would enter once a year, the high priest, and sprinkle the blood of a sacrificed animal. That lid was called the mercy seat. And it came between the presence of the holy God above the ark and the broken law of God that was contained in the ark itself, the tablets of the law. And so it covered the broken law, shielding the sinner from God's judgment. The covering with the blood on it turned aside God's wrath against sin by covering it for us. And we see that applied in the New Testament to the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 3, where we're told God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, of covering, our mercy seat, 
The theological term is our propitiation. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement or covering our mercy seat through the shedding of his blood to be received by believing, by faith. The third word for what God does with our sin is actually what he does not do with it. In verse 2, we're told he does not count this corruption, this twistedness against us. This is who we are. This is our, our nature, corrupted by nature, twisted. Thanks be to God, he does not count that against us. It appears that David, in writing this, has a, a prior passage in the Bible in mind when he says God does not count, uses that word count, our sinfulness against us. Because that same word is used in a very, very important passage of David's ancestor, Abraham, a thousand years earlier. Where we're told, many of you know this verse from Genesis 15, Abraham believed the Lord. And he credited, that is he counted it to him as righteousness. This is why in the New Testament these two passages are combined. In Romans chapter 4, Genesis chapter 15 and Psalm 32. The Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, says in Romans 4, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. Again, credited, counted. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith, his belief, is counted, credited as righteousness. And then he goes on and says, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom the Lord credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count, impute against him. So when we come to Christ, God counts in two ways. He counts our belief, our, our faith in the person and work of Christ he counts that as righteousness, righteousness that we don't have ourselves, but righteousness that is given to us from outside of ourselves by the Lord who is perfectly righteous and lived a perfectly righteous life for us. And so he does that. He counts the righteousness, imputes, credits the righteousness of Christ to us, and he does not count our sins against us, none of them, past, present, or even future. So when you came to Christ, the same Paul who wrote Romans chapter 4 said in Colossians chapter 2, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. His mercy is bestowed on you by giving you spiritual empowerment to respond. So you're dead spiritually prior to that. But he made you alive. And having made you and me alive and we respond by believing in who Jesus is and what he did, he forgave us, notice, all our sins. So friends, that is the context of what this psalm then says about our ongoing relationship with God. The context is set in these first two verses with our initial relationship with God established when we came to faith, when we believed who Christ is and what he has done for us. And it's in that context then 
that David is saying that he has access to this joy in the Lord. If you have come to Christ that way, and he has forgiven all of your sins, and he refuses to count your sinfulness against you, and he has given you the righteousness of Christ, do we not have every reason to join with David in joyfulness before the Lord? So the blessed person is one who has, first and foremost, a personal relationship with God, and I say in the outline, an open relationship with God. Because we have been given his righteousness and forgiveness, we want to live for him and please him and put away anything that hinders that. In fact, when we hold on to any such habit, struggle, sin, if we belong to the Lord, then we are restless, we are unsettled, and sometimes worse, as David was. An open relationship with God avoids then, I say in the outline, the misery of guilt. And David had this misery. Verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. David was adversely affected physically and emotionally because spiritually he was not right. He was hiding his sin rather than being open about it. And because he was God's child and so had God's spirit, he was miserable. He says why he was affected as he was in verse number 4. Because, verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. God convicts us of our sin for the good purpose of moving us to deal with it and to restore the intimacy of our relationship with him. Again, not the reality of the relationship, but rather the intimacy, our fellowship with God. If you belong to God, your sin makes you miserable. And you should consider that a good thing, that you're miserable when you sin. Because it's a good God chasing you down. It's a God who loves you chasing you down. As one called him, the hound of heaven is coming for you. Because you belong to him. So consider it a good sign that you care about your sin and you want to be rid of it. An open relationship with God avoids the misery of guilt and avails one of the remedy of guilt. When confronted with our sin, we as God's children do what David did, and we pursue an open relationship with God. Verse 5, Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and did not cover up my iniquity, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Verse 5 is the longest verse in this psalm <coughs> because the focus is on it.
And verse 5 contains all three of the Hebrew words for sin that were used back in verses 1 and 2. It's saying that for all of David's sin, he sought to confess, and more important, God forgave it so that there was relief from guilt and the intimacy was restored, and it was done, notice, immediately without inter any intermediate hoops to jump through. In verse 5, I acknowledged my sin, did not cover up iniquity, confessed my transgressions, and then you forgave the guilt. So friends, the, the gospel of God's grace is one in which God himself has come to earth to do the work that we could not do for ourselves. And we repair to that. We repair to him. We go to him for that relief from the guilt of our sin. There's nothing we do to earn it. There's no penance that you go through. There's no assignment that I or some would-be priest would give you in order for this to happen. You come to him, you confess directly because you have our high priest Jesus and because he's done the work for you, he forgives the guilt immediately. And so 1 John 1 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This restores the closeness of our relationship to the Lord. He is most important, and that is most important. It's most important that I have, that you have, a close, intimate relationship with the Lord who owns you by right of creation and redemption. That's the most important, but if our sin did in fact involve others, we need to confess that sin to them as well. The Bible tells us in James chapter 5, confess your sins to each other. Now, some have taken that to mean that you just confess your sins to just like everybody. <laughs> and, and a number of people believe that. They believe that in church settings, that Christians should just confess whatever is going on in their lives to others. Now, to unburden yourself, to get uh, help from other brothers and sisters, if you want to talk about the struggle that you're having, then of course you are, are welcome to, to do that. But there's no obligation to confess sin to people who were not involved in the sin. But when the sin does involve others, as it often does, then we have an obligation, yes, to confess to the Lord, but also to confess to them and to seek their forgiveness. <coughs> I've noticed that Many find this, going to other people, to be more difficult than confessing to the Lord. Which shows a bit of practical atheism. God is really a sort of non-factor, or at least not the most important factor. Because you can ask, as I've done in counseling a lot of times with people, have you, have you gone to the Lord? Oh, yeah, I've gone to the Lord. I've taken away. Have you gone to the other people? Ah, boy, I haven't got, you know, that's, that's tough. So going to the Lord wasn't tough, but going to other people is? God is, in effect, this kind of non-factor, or at least not the most important factor, other people and what they think or will think about us apparently are. 
Being able and willing to confess and seek forgiveness from those we've wronged is a key indicator of whether we've been forgiven by God ourselves. It requires humility and it requires honesty. And no shading or weasel words like, if I offended you. If, in fact, you did offend, then eliminate the if and just say, because I offended you. When I, and then name what you did. I'm asking you to forgive me. Or, because I've harmed you, when I failed to fill in the blank, I ask you to forgive me. Christians are supposed to be able to do that. There's a very helpful ministry called Peacemaker Ministries. And for years, they have done very good work on interpersonal relationships among Christians and how to reconcile broken relationships. We have a book in our resource center called The Peacemaker. It has a number of these principles in it, but one of the things that they've taught for many years is what they call the seven A's of confession. The A's, they all seven of them start with the letter A. And the first is that you address everyone involved, all those whom your sin has affected. Avoid the weasel words. If, but, maybe. Do not try to excuse your wrongs. Now, this is assuming that you, you have, in fact, sinned. Admit specifically both sinful attitudes and, and actions. Acknowledge the hurt. Express sorrow for hurting the, the other person and the, the consequences that that has had on them. Let them know that as best you can, you're seeking to empathize with them. And accept the consequence. It might be that you need to make restitution depending on, on the offense. But notice number six here, alter your behavior. See, what many people do, and I've noticed this over the years in counseling folks, they use this acknowledge, confess, a word that in the Bible means to say the same thing. Confess means say the same thing that God says about it. And so they acknowledge it. They say, will you forgive me? And then they say, okay, let's let bygones be bygones. Meanwhile, you've got a person who's been harmed here. And that harm doesn't necessarily go away. They can grant you forgiveness, and they should. But there is still the harm, and you need to show that you recognize those consequences and seek not to have it happen again. Alter your behavior. But what happens is people go through these motions, they exchange these words, Let's not let bygones be bygones and then go and do it again and then do it again and do it again. And so the person who is the offended party is being harmed over and over and over again without a change of attitude or actions or an acknowledgement that such needs to happen. Hey, I said I was sorry. Hey, I asked forgiveness. When are you going to get over it? You see, friends, this process between us needs to be transformational rather than transactional. Transactional means I go through the motions. Transformational means 
I'm doing this and I'm seeking to cooperate with the Lord in the way he says in his word for me to overcome this, mostly for his reputation, but also for your benefit. So why did David cover? Why do we cover rather than confess? The main reason that we do this is because we have not fully appropriated and applied the implications of the gospel of grace to our lives. And here's why I say that. You see, we still, in the recesses of our minds and hearts, think that we somehow have to earn our position before God. And to the extent you think that, you can only admit so much stuff. Because then I got more and more stuff to make up for. And it's on me. And so you don't want to deal with the, the reality. But here's the beautiful thing about the gospel of grace. Jesus Christ has dealt with it for you. So you don't have to cover up your sin because Jesus has covered your sin with his blood. And if you believe that, it gives then a confidence and a boldness and an openness to be able to acknowledge, to confess, to say the same thing that God says about it. Now notice in this psalm, that some of you have an English translation that has an untranslated Hebrew word, stila. It's a, a notation in the Hebrew Bible, and it's in three places in this psalm. Though the latest edition of the NIV, which many of you have, does not show it, because it is, in fact, a notation, not part of the, the text of the psalm itself. But I think it's important because it's a Hebrew word that probably means pause and take notice. And the first occurrence is immediately before verse 5. The main verse, the largest verse in this psalm. After David's description of the extremely negative effects of unconfessed sin on himself. And the next occurrence is immediately after verse 5. Following the word, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And so this is telling us that we should, in the words of one preacher, pause and wonder. The fact that two of the three times it's used in the psalm are at the beginning and the end of verse 5 is another way to indicate that verse is important. And it also gives the reason that I have spent all of this time on the first five verses and will spend almost none on the last verse. The blessed man is one who has a personal relationship with God, an open relationship, and I say in your outline, a continual relationship with God. A relationship with God results in continual three things. The first one is protection. Verse 6. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. So David summons everyone in verse 6 to do as he did. You remember that in Psalm 51, he had vowed to teach others what he had learned. And so he says here, to demonstrate the genuineness of your relationship to God by confessing to him now, before judgment. And all of those who have that genuine relationship 
will be spared from that judgment. That's what he's saying in those verses. The relationship with God results in protection, protection from ultimate judgment, and also continual counsel. Verse 8 says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. God here is promising to guide us and watch over us so that we are not overtaken by the sin that we've confessed and that we want to forsake. So confess to him willingly, not by compulsion, verse 9 says. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. You should come willingly, not under compulsion. Many other woes of the wicked But the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. The continual relationship with God gives continual protection and counsel. And lastly, that joy that I spoke about at the beginning. The psalm ends in verse 11. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Dear friend, You and I, if we belong to Jesus Christ, have every reason to carry out what verse 11 says. A joyless Christian should be an oxymoron. A miserable Christian should be an oxymoron. There are times in a fallen world where things come upon us like, you know, none of us have had what Job has had. The Apostle Paul said there were times where he despaired of life itself. Sometimes life in a fallen world is so heavy upon us. There are times like that, to be sure. But friends, that should not be the the regular characteristic of our lives. The normal characteristic of our lives is that we focus upon the blessings that you see throughout Scripture, and very pointedly so in Psalm number 31. And so here's your take-home truth. Being rightly related to God brings wonderful benefits from God. Now it's my joyful duty to make sure, just as we pray together, that every person here has an opportunity to be rightly related to God. That goes back to verses 1 and 2, which are quoted in Romans chapter 4, which speak of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose blood covers our sin, and whose life of righteousness is imputed, counted, credited to us, though we earned none of it. And so he offers, he invites to you, if you've never come to him, to acknowledge your sin, humble yourself before God now in this sacred moment. Lord, I am a sinner, and I believe that Jesus Christ is the only remedy for my sin. I need the righteousness that only he can credit to me, count to me. I need the forgiveness of sin, the covering with his blood that only he can supply. I ask you to give that to me. He will. And then he will begin his reclamation project from the inside out in you. And so you realize you're a sinner, recognize Christ died for your sin. You repent, Lord, I'm going to follow you as you show me and give me the, the strength and ability. You receive Jesus Christ into your life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for including this marvelous portion of Scripture in your word. 
We thank you that your servant David was open and that he wrote this for all to see because he understood that his sins have been covered. Then he's able to confess, say the same thing you said. And we are the beneficiaries now these 3,000 years later. Lord, help me to appropriate these blessed words regularly that you have done what I could not do for myself. Help my dear friends and brothers and sisters to do that. And Lord, in your mercy, we ask that you would reach down into the hearts of some who came into this room today without a relationship with you and bring them to yourself. Cause them to see that they, like all of us, need what only the Lord Jesus Christ can provide. And we will give you the honor and the praise. In his name we pray, amen. Just before we stand for our closing song, have someone who's looking to join our church. So Andy, if you'll come on up. And this is Andy Stevenson. You say, Andy's just joining the church. I've seen him here for years. <laughs> and that, and that's, that's true. He's been coming for many years, going 10 maybe. Yeah. And he was invited to our church by a couple that some of you may know. They moved out to the west side of the state, uh, uh, James and Sharon Sternberg. But they invited Andy. He's been coming for all these years. And at a previous last year at a baptism, he came to the baptism. And during that baptism, he was convicted because he hadn't been baptized, which means he hadn't joined the church. And he comes